Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. Yeah, more people than usual. This is good. All right, let's pray. And then uh, let's uh, get into it. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints. We thank you for the opportunity to gather and talk about the office of elder. We pray that you be with us this morning as we consider officer nominations, as we continue into public worship, as we have a, a baptism, as we hear from your word, as we go on about our day afterward. Lord, would you fill us with a fresh vision of the beauty of Christ? Would you draw us to yourself in prayer for ourselves and for one another? And would you shine the light of your face upon us? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I know everyone's favorite book in the world is the PCA's Book of Church Order. If you can't sleep at night, this will help. I promise. Uh, I actually kind of like our Book of Church Order, but that's okay. I'm a nerd, and that's, that's why I have to deal with it. You guys don't, but, but you can, and it is freely available. There's an app that you can download. If you search for PCA, BCO, you'll find it. And the reason I bring up our book of church order is just to bring everything into the light of day, right? We can talk about the New Testament. We can talk about the history of the church. What's the office of elder? How is it understood? But I'd like to point to how our denomination understands the office of elder, what it is, what are its qualifications, what are its duties, what's the process for nominating and electing and installing elders, just so that we all understand how that works. So if you want to get into that a little bit more, uh, chapter 7 of the Book of Church Order talks about offices in the church and lays down some general principles. What are the offices? What's their nature? Chapter 8 deals specifically with the office of elder. And then chapter 24 deals with the process of nominating and training and examining and then electing and installing elders and deacons. So if you want to look more into that, those are places to go. Book of Church Order, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 24. But if we skip to chapter 8 of the Book of Order... Talking about elders, it says this office is one of dignity and usefulness. The man who fills it has in scripture different titles expressive of his various duties. As he has the oversight of the flock of Christ, he is termed bishop or pastor. As it is his duty to be grave and prudent, an example to the flock and to govern well in the house and kingdom of Christ, he is termed presbyter or elder as he expounds the word and by sound doctrine, both exhorts and convinces the gainsayer. He is termed teacher. These titles do not indicate different grades of office, but all describe one and the same office. 
you'll see that as we talk about the New Testament and how it talks about the office of elder is different words will be used in different places to describe one and the same office. Here you heard bishop. Several of our English translations will use overseer in place of bishop there. He that fills this office should possess a competency of human learning and be blameless in life, sound in the faith and apt to teach. He should exhibit a sobriety and holiness of life becoming the gospel. He should rule his own house well and should have a good report of them that are outside the church. It belongs to those in the office of elder, both severally and jointly, to watch diligently over the flock committed to his charge, that no corruption of doctrine or of morals enter therein. They must exercise government and discipline and take oversight not only of the spiritual interests of the particular church, but also the church generally when called thereunto. They should visit the people at their homes, especially the sick. They should instruct the ignorant, comfort the mourner, nourish and guard the children of the church. They should set a worthy example to the flock entrusted to their care by their zeal to evangelize the unconverted and make disciples. All those duties which private Christians are bound to discharge by the law of love are especially incumbent upon them by divine vocation and are to be discharged as official duties. They should pray with and for the people, being careful and diligent in seeking the fruit of the preached word among the flock. And it goes on. That's, that's about the first third of the chapter. And one of the things it does in the remainder of the chapter is it distinguishes two special giftings in the office of elder. So that you have teaching elders and ruling elders. So that all of these duties belong to all elders. But some are gifted and called specifically to teaching and preaching the word. uh, And others are called to rule. So that's why there's, there's seminary and an ordination process for ministers But it's very important in our polity, our church government, we understand that to be one office with a distinction of gifts, if that makes sense. So ruling elders and teaching elders are viewed as one office. And part of the historical reasons for that, um, well, we don't don't need to get into that now. Let's let's get into 1 Timothy and Titus and and 1 Peter. But we can circle back to that. There are historical reasons uh, in addition to how the New Testament describes it, that we insist on a, on a parody of ruling elders and teaching elders. And so courts can't meet without a minimum number of ruling elders. You can't have ministers getting together and deciding things without ruling elders representing the church. So let's look at First Timothy chapter 3. Timothy is serving in Ephesus. As a pastor, he's a relatively young minister. Paul writes to encourage and instruct him, to warn him against false teachers, and also calls him to appoint elders. He does this for Titus as well. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he describes the qualifications for elders. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, 
the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And then it proceeds after that to describe qualifications for deacons. So what do you see in this paragraph? What things stand out to you among those qualifications? It's largely just a list, right? But it's got to be above reproach. The husband of one wife, which, which many have paraphrased as a, a one woman at a time man. That doesn't mean serially with one woman, woman after woman after woman, right? But shows in his relationship with his wife the dedication one would want to see to the church in his role as an overseer. Might be a good way of talking about that. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Which of these stand out to you or which, which of these do you have questions about? Okay, well, I like the able to teach part, but that's just because I'm like, it's the teacher in me. But um, because if you're able to teach, that means you're willing to learn. If you're willing to learn, that means you're humble. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, able to teach is, is certainly there. And that's why our Book of Church Order describes, Paul describes, that that is something for all elders, that's not something that belongs specifically to ministers as teaching elders, but that's a requirement laid down for all elders and their qualifications. Why do you fall into the condemnation of the devil part? Yes, so in verse 6 and 7, right? So, because there's, there's two parallel phrases there. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So the condemnation of the devil, right, relates specifically to pride. And so as a new convert, Paul sees them as particularly susceptible to pride, being recognized as knowledgeable, being entrusted with office, before they're ready, before God has developed those graces in them, right? That can provoke pride, which is what drove the devil out of heaven, right? There's a relationship there. And then disgrace as the snare of the devil, right? If they, if they don't have a good reputation outside the church, then they can drag the reputation of the church down with them. And they can also fall prey to trying to hold on to or build up that reputation so they can fall into disgrace. They can be used as a trap by Satan in a way that affects not just them, but the whole, the whole congregation. All right, should we look at Titus 1? We can talk about the 
the portrait of an elder that emerges as we consider these, these different lists. Titus is serving in Crete, which is a, a very different place than Ephesus, though they have some things in common. They both need clear teaching on sound doctrine. They need elders to assist and be involved in that, the teaching, the guarding, the flock, but the dangers are different. And so Paul speaks to Titus uh, in chapter one, beginning in verse five. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He goes on to talk about why, and in particular in the, in the context of Crete there because there are many who are subordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, right? Who describe, who uh, disguise themselves as part of the church. Questions or, or observations on this list here. See, it's a great deal in common, a little bit of distinction and addressing different people in different places, but clearly describing the same office. You can see in those overlapping qualifications, right? To Timothy, Paul used the word overseer or bishop to describe the office. Here in writing to Titus, he uses the word elder to describe the office. This is one of the reasons we see these as overlapping terms describing one office that we have in view. There's a qualification here that's not in 1 Timothy. Um, and it is... I say a qualification, not a qualification in terms of this, but a, uh, perhaps a little bit more than the, the reason for being above approach is because you're a steward of God, which is interesting because otherwise you can just interpret it as a list of things of, hey, check this list. But really, when you think about being a steward of God, it brings more to why these things are necessary. Um, I guess it would be almost as if being a fiduciary in financial capacity, um, you know, that there's an element of responsibility that is that you carry that has a lot of responsibility and accountability, I would assume. We don't see this here, but um, that goes with that. So, rehab, I think. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that out. There's another element that's specifically accented here. It's not absent from 1 Timothy, but it's, it's brought up multiple times here. Uh, and it's just before that. It's um, not open to the charge of debauchery. Right? Both passages mention he's not to be a drunkard. Uh, but you brought out the steward of God, and it mentions here as well, not open to the charge of debauchery. And I think Paul's emphasis on those particular elements here 
have to do with the cultural context in Crete that he describes in the next paragraph, because those are things that mark this people. They're broadly known in the Roman world. Their own poets describe them in rather less than glamorous terms as lazy and drunkards and, and greedy, right? Um, he quotes one of the, the Cretan writers in verse 12. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So given that known context and dangers that are more present in Crete than in Ephesus or in other places, Paul lays that extra emphasis on those things here. That, um, you know, when you look at verse 5 where it says this is why I let you increase so that you might put the re- what remained in the order do you think that I guess this is written to Titus um, that Paul is viewing him as a elder in and, of itself, in and of itself because if it is you have to make a a um, logical deduction to get there, but there's kind of an unspoken qualification into um, the administrative capabilities of an elder, like just to put things into order. It's not in the list of things, but that's the reason why he was appointed to do what he was appointed to do. So. I think there's a possibility there, and I think we see that elsewhere in when it talks about how an elder governs his household. See that here and in 1 Timothy. We do have a unique situation in the history of the church here in this generational shift from Paul to Timothy and Titus to the continuing history of the church because the apostles have traveled all over and they have, they have planted churches, but they're not there to govern or to lead, or to shepherd the churches that they've planted. And in some cases, as with Timothy and Titus, they've, they've left co-workers behind to lead and pastor those churches. But they need a continuity of leadership. They need elders who will take up the reins to watch over the church in succeeding generations. And so uh, another feature of this is you have, you have Titus appointing elders. Well, in our polity, we don't appoint elders, right? Nominations come from the congregation. And then the session, right, the the council of elders will train them and examine them and inquire into their qualifications. And then after a training process, they'll be presented to the congregation and the congregation will vote for them. Uh, but that, that process is not in place here in the midst of that generational shift from Paul to Timothy and Titus to, say, that first generation of elders for the church. The logical that they, they would be a people appoint them rather than to be elected if we are going into the court. There was no one there to, to, to teach and so forth, so he had to appoint somebody to to get the thing started. The thing is not a good term. Uh, to get the, uh, the church in order, uh, teaching in order and everything. Yes, sir. We have an analogous situation with church planting where 
uh, we will send an elder out to plant a church. And as that church is being planted, they will borrow elders from other churches. And so they will meet together with the one who's planting the church to oversee the church as it's planted until the church is able to identify and nominate and train and then install its own elders. And then from that point forward, they don't have that, that borrowed session anymore, but they have their own elders. That happened actually here. That's the way we began. The, the elders of the Plains uh, Presbyterians who oversaw uh, this group until we became particular. They, it was their elders who trained us. Yes, sir. What we don't have is a situation that some other denominations have where some other body, whether it be the Presbytery or someone who serves in an office that functions like the presbytery called a bishop or someone else can impose on a church, an officer against the congregation's will. All right. So we look at first Peter. This has less to do with the qualifications described rather here. Peter gives a charge directly to the elders of the church he's writing to, but we'll see both some of the same things and what one elder would say to another about their office and their duties. This is interesting, especially because Peter is an apostle. He was an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus. He walked with him. He learned from him, but he doesn't address the elders here as an apostle. He addresses them as another elder and expressly says so in chapter five, verse one. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He continues on from there, actually still talking to elders as well as to the rest of the congregation. And that I'll read that as well, because I think it's interesting. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what terms do you hear being used to describe this office in these passages? Shepherd. Shepherd. 
Good. What else? Example. Example. Humility. Okay. Humility. Teacher. Teacher. Elders, the obvious one. Right. Nobody's mentioned it yet, so I'll go for the low-hanging fruit there. Overseer or bishop, depending on the, the translation you're looking at. Some of our translations are done by people who don't like bishops, and so they'll avoid the word bishop in English, translated by what it means instead. Humble. Yep, so humble, humility. So again, moving away from titles, talking about um, characterization of people in the office. So humble. Faithful. Faithful. Sober-minded, watchful. Sober-minded and watchful. Good. Holy. Holy. Sorry? Yeah, so with respect to their office and their duties, eager. Gentle. Gentle. A couple of times there, not violent, but gentle. Hospitable. Hospitable. Good. Teacher. Yeah, yes, we could put teaching. able to teach, teaching, which Paul describes as by both instruction and example. A lot of us would like to wiggle out of one or the other of those, right? I teach by example. I teach by instruction. Meaning, I don't have to do the other, right? Well, no. <laughs> Sorry? Dignified. Dignified. I've been for 40 years. You gotta have a lot of patience. Yes. Patient. Of good repute. Disciplined. I'm going to run out of space up here, which is okay. I don't know about you, but I suspect if we were to poll people around the room, there's probably two kinds of reactions to going over these things and talking about it. And, and one is, well, that's not me. Right? As you're confronted with that list, as Paul develops it, as we talk about it, who could possibly qualify for that office? Not me. I'm going to opt out. Right? And the other reaction, maybe, is you're sitting there and you're hearing this list. You think, well, that guy on the other side of the room, I think that describes him. Maybe he should be an elder. Think about that. And pray about that, right? One, one thing that we have seen over and over as we have worked our way through Ezra and Nehemiah, as we, if you remember back in Philippians, right, is elders do not do this and accomplish this and embody this because they're super Christians, but because the hand of their God is upon them for good. For them as individuals, for them in their office, for the good of the church. This is a spirit-empowered office. No one can faithfully execute their oversight over the flock of God without being dependent upon God to do so. Without modeling repentance, without being aware of their own shortcomings and praying for grace and strength. There is a heaviness to the office that some men in this room discharge over you that we are considering as a congregation calling others to. So let us 
make sure that we do so with prayer, with reflection, with thankfulness for the elders we have and being reminded of, of all Christ asks of them, renewing our prayers for our elders. Because we, we need it. We need it. And yet, this is something that the Lord Jesus prepares people among us for. He gives us officers as gifts for his church. Questions about the process? Let me get back into the book of church order. Wake us up a little bit. I will look uh, briefly at, so chapter 24, just so that you know, well, what, what does our... Um, what does our polity require and describe? Yes, sir. Yeah, thank you, Rob. All this is points to being strong, not only in your faith, but also in yourself. Because as an elder, there will be times that you may have to make really tough decisions. And you know, hopefully you never will, but that becomes something that not only is trying on you, but the entire congregation, everyone acts good. You really have to sit out and make those really hard decisions. You need a lot of faith and strength in, in you through God. And have the ability to really handle that with a lot of prayer. Understanding it's, a, it's an important job if you don't like it. Well... <laughs> It's an important job whether you do it right or not. Yeah. <laughs> For good or ill. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, the process outlined in the book of church order in chapter 24 is this is the, the manner in which any church would elect officers. It's as, at such times, as determined by the session. Communicant members of the congregation may submit names to the session keeping in mind that each prospective officer should be an active male member who meets the qualifications set forth in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And after the close of the nomination period, nominees for the office shall receive instruction in, in the qualifications and work of the office and then be examined in these areas. Their Christian experience, especially his personal character and family management, his knowledge of Bible content, his knowledge of the system of doctrine, government, and discipline contained in our church constitution, the duties of the office to which they've been nominated, and their willingness to give assent to the questions required for ordination. If there are candidates eligible for the election, the session shall report to the congregation those eligible, giving at least 30 days prior notice of the time and place of a congregational meeting for elections. So we'll go through a nomination process and then we'll, we'll train and examine the candidates. And then we would give notice to the congregation that in a month's time, we'll have a congregational meeting probably right after a Sunday service where we will present those who've been nominated and trained and then we'll, we'll vote as a congregation. Any more questions about the office, about the qualifications, about the process? We do have these cards, which you may have seen next to the bulletins on your way in. So we made one card. Lord willing, we may nominate deacons in the future. So we have elder nominations open right now, but the card has both on there. So a place for you to put the name of the person that you're nominating, 
and then your name, and check that you're a communing member of the church, the signature of the person you're nominating so that we know you talk to them <laughs> and they're willing to be nominated. They might say, no, thank you. Uh, and then date, and then if you can just give this to, to me or to one of the elders, and we'll go from there. I assume that if someone wanted to nominate more than one person, they would turn it to God, say, for instance, if there's two people. Yes, sir. It's not on there, and it's not written anywhere in the scriptures, but you have to maintain a sense of humor. I think so. Yes, sir. Don't ever lose it. <laughs> Thirty-seven. I think more important than a target number would be considering the qualifications and people in the congregation identifying people who are qualified. If that's one, if that's seven, if that's, if that's zero, I don't think it's zero. I haven't been here very long either, so I don't get to nominate folks, so. All right. Well, why don't we pray and grab some more coffee and maybe grab a nomination card and pray about it. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this day. Thank you for fresh reminders of your mercies as we rose and made our way to church this morning. Would you continue to display to us your love? May we recognize it and turn and give you the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.